Good to see you all today. Happy to be here with you, continue to talk about Isaiah and the lessons we can learn. Um, I actually am happy to be here. I told Shelly this morning I was about to send her all my notes because yesterday morning I woke up and I don't know if any of you have ever had vertigo. That was a weird thing. So I woke up, my eyes wouldn't focus on any one thing. The room was spinning. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't walk. So I had to go to the emergency room. And in about an hour, I was totally fine again. So, But it was really neat because I prayed on the way there, give us a neat doctor in the room. And the doctor walked in the room and looked at Ted and said, you're my pastor. <laughs> so God went before us. Anyway, it was over very quickly, but it was very weird. So I'm happy to be here. Um, last week we looked at the sovereignty of God and God's desire to have a relationship with his creation and how he's always been communicating with his creation. And we talked about how he communicated with the world through the patriarchs, through Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. And we talked about how he spoke through Moses, Joseph, and David, he spoke to us through the law, through his prophet and his judges. He spoke to us through his son, Jesus Christ. He speaks to us through the apostles and their writings. He speaks to us through his written word. He's always talking, and I hope you notice in these three verses, he's always saying, listen, listen to me. He's talking, but the world chooses not to listen. Instead, God's creation desires to be very independent of their creator. It began with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they chose to act independently from the God that had provided for them and walked with them in rich fellowship. It's continued on until today. In fact, I thought it was very interesting this week if we could have a poster child that represents the destructive independence of God. You all know who I'm thinking about. He's on the television every time you turn the TV on right now. He's on every magazine at the checkout stand. He is a great example of what life is like, the destructive results of becoming independent of our creator. The world has chosen to shut out the voice of their creator and the desires of their maker and act as if they have no God at all. The world does listen, but not to their creator. Look at your first sheet, verse sheet. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth, the voice of God, and turn aside to myths. And in the year 2011... God is still shouting out, listen to me. Today, he's shouting out to the Babylonians. He's shouting out to Judah. We can learn from both of them what the destructive results are when we choose to live our lives independent from God. First of all, we're tempted to be independent of God's provision. How does a person who lives in this world get their needs met if they don't know God? Well, they fill other things to try to fill the vacancy in their lives that was meant for God to fill. Um, I was with a friend the other day, and she has horses. 
and she was telling me about the way that you train a horse. If you have a wild, unbroken horse, they're in the middle of a corral. The trainer stands dead center in the middle of the corral. He's the provider. He's the one who cares about this horse. The horse is wild, and the first thing that horse does is run around the fence of the corral. And where's he looking? He doesn't want to be obedient to this trainer that stands in the middle of the corral. So he's running and he's looking out, wanting to break away. And the goal of the trainer is to get that horse to stop and look him in his eyes and learn to trust and submit to the leadership and the rule of the trainer that stands in the middle of the corral. And I thought, gosh, the world is full of wild, broken, unsaved horses looking out into the world to have their needs met when the one that loves them the most is dead center in the middle of their world, the God that's responsible for who they are and their life. He's ready. He's waiting to be their provider. Babylon was a wild, unbroken horse. They had created many false gods that they thought, that's my provider. That's who I'm going to depend on. But when Persia overcame their city, they found their gods did not provide for their needs. Look at Isaiah 46, verse 1. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Okay, Bel was the main god of the Babylonians. He was um, another name for Marduk we talked about last week. He was the god of the sun. And then supposedly he had a son, and his name was uh, Nebo. And he was the god of learning, writing, and astronomy. So you have these two very important gods in Babylon. In fact, 12 miles south of Babylon, there was a gold image of Bel that was 18 feet tall, solid gold, that the people would go and bow under. So we have these two outstanding gods, the pride of Babylon, but we read in these verses, they are bowed down. They are stooping low. And what Isaiah is prophesying about here is when Cyrus invades the city of Babylon. And these gods that were meant to carry the Babylonians into safety, they have to watch them being lifted and carried and placed on the backs of cattle and donkey and mules to be taken and carried away themselves off into captivity bow down in shame and defeat, suffering the indignity of going out unceremoniously on the backs of donkeys from the city where they were held in such great esteem. These idols were used to being carried about in the parades of the Babylonians carried about on their New Year's Day festival. But think about it, even then they were a burden. They had to be carried. They weren't carrying any of the needs of the people of Babylon. God describes the process of creating these gods in this chapter. We mentioned this a few weeks ago, how people just have to gather up metal 
It's not so much only coins and money. They didn't have a lot of coins. They would gather metals, silver and golds. When they got enough in their little money bag, they'd pay a goldsmith to make it into an idol. They would um, bow down. They would worship it. In the verses we read, we realize they would prostrate themselves on the ground before the mass of metal that just days earlier was laying in their pocket. Adoring it. Giving their hearts to it. Crying out to it for help. And it says then they'd take it and set it on a shelf and they'd cry out to it. And Isaiah tells us that God says they can never save you from your troubles. They will never answer you. And for us reading this, we think, well, this was such a waste of their time. Making, gathering metal, making something that can't do anything, setting it on a shelf, bowing down to it. But our world is just as desperate in creating something to meet the needs, the vacancy, that life apart from God, that vacancy fills our hearts. So I thought we need to evaluate ourselves. What is it that I carry on a little shelf in my mind, that I carry with me as I walk through this life, that I have come to depend upon to keep me happy and safe? It is so easy to do that. It is so easy to put relationships in that spot. My husband's job is to keep me happy and safe. My children's job is to keep me happy and safe. My friends' jobs are to keep me happy and safe. And, of course, we all know we can begin to also think money will keep me happy and safe. My busyness, my job. And as we rely on these things, we realize they're meeting our superficial needs, but they were never meant, nor will they ever be able to keep our real needs met, the deep spiritual needs in our life. And so as we rely on these wrong things for our fulfillment, we finally become dependent on them. The Babylonians had created these Idols that they carried around on their shoulders, they were heavy burdens for them to bear. When we live our lives this way, depending on others and other things to be happy, we also will find that going through life, life is a heavy burden to carry because guess what? People let us down. Jobs change. Money changes. Circumstances change. That becomes a burden in our life. So here's what the world offers. The captivity that results from carrying a hope in those things which cannot meet our real needs. Years ago, Ted and I had just been married a short time, and we had this family. We didn't really know them, but they heard about us through Young Life, that um, they wanted us to come and babysit their kids while they went out of town for the week. And I was very young at the time, and I remember she wanted to meet us beforehand, which I thought was a good idea. They had three kids. Um, I got to her house. This was my first introduction to the pyramid plans, and I'm sure some of them are good. I don't really know much about them, but some of them might not be. Some of them might be one of those idols we decide is going to make our lives really good and happy. 
And I would say that's where this family fell into that camp. And I can remember she showed me around her house. She had three kids. She didn't say much about that. But on the walls, she had taped pictures of really nice homes, really nice cars, really nice vacation spots. And she said, this is going to be our world. This is what is going to happen to us. We will be free to do these kind of things, live in these kind of places, telling us about this wonderful pyramid scheme that she was doing. Now, I didn't have to be in her house long after they went on vacation to realize this is a house in captivity. You had three kids who were isolated in their bedrooms. Each had their own television, their own sound. They weren't allowed to come out at night and disturb the parents who were dreaming their big plans of their future that was going to make them free. I can remember Ted and I turned the television on at night, and the one little boy, the youngest one, was peeking through his door. And I said, come out here. And he said, oh, really? Really? I can sit out there with you? And I realized the waste, the captivity of propping up the wrong things to make our life wonderful. That was a family that was in captivity. It's as senseless as the Babylonians who looked at an ape, foot high piece of gold and said this is where my happiness will lie this is what will get me through the tough times when God created man he desired to be our provider and to meet all of our needs unlike false gods and false hopes that need to be carried his hope is to carry us throughout our life I read this great great quote. Ever since Isaiah, men have been aware that one of the vital distinctions between true religion and false is that whereas the false is a dead burden for the soul to carry, the true religion is a living power to carry the soul. When we rest in the arms of our Creator, He has the living power to carry our soul. Remember we read Isaiah 40, 11. It says he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. That's where he wants us. That's where he can bless us. That's where he can help and be our provider. So here's what God desires for us. The freedom that comes from allowing God to carry us and sustain us from our birth unto our death. We read last week what David said. It's on your verse sheet again, Psalm 71. For you have been my hope, O sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. So how does God want to carry our soul from birth until we're physically gone and with him in eternity, and we could take up the rest of this year talking about that, so I just picked a few of the biggies. God wants to carry us into salvation. On your verse sheet, 2 Corinthians, God reconciled to himself us through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. 
He wants to carry us into a relationship with him. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He wants to carry us during our sorrows. Cast all your cares on me because I care for you. He wants to carry us into an abundant life. Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. He wants to carry us during our trials. In James we read, Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds, and if you lack anything at that time, if you lack wisdom, you should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And he wants to carry us to be home, to live with him forever. John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. God wants Judah to know this. God wants Judah to understand this. So first, what did he do? He exposed the feudal hopes and provisions of the Babylonians in their false gods. Now he speaks to his children, wanting to be their provider. He says, listen, I am not one of those helpless idols that the Babylonians followed. I carried you in your past. I have glorious plans for you in the future. Only I can bring them about. Look at verse 3 of chapter 46. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. I thought it was interesting. God uses the same words, born and carry, as when he was talking about the Babylonian idols. Only here's the difference. Idols were born from man. Israel was birthed from God. Idols have to be carried. God has carried Israel from the time they came into being. In fact, look at Deuteronomy 32 on your verse sheet. This was written hundreds of years before now. For the Lord's portion is his people, Israel his allotted inheritance. In a desert land, God found him in a barren and howling waste. God shielded him and cared for him as the apple of his eye. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. God made him ride on the heights of the land. But Israel grew fat and kicked. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock his Savior. God is pleading in verse 4, I am he, I sustain you, I will help you, I will rescue you. Six times he uses the word I to try to get them to understand that. And then what is their response to God's provision? God talks about a portion of Israel who are extremely critical and set apart from God. And he says, listen to my evaluation of your behavior. You are stubborn. You are rebels. You are far from righteousness because they refuse to see the truth before their very eyes. And if you think back to the little vision and vision of the unbroken wild horses, I can just picture Judah as well at the edge of the corral fence, pawing into the dirt, 
looking out anywhere but turning to look at their master and trainer who has so many wonderful plans for them. He says, only I've been faithful to you in the past. Only I have revealed events to you that will come to pass. And then he brings up Cyrus, one of the other plans of God. Look at verse 11. From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Cyrus is not just another conqueror. Cyrus is a divinely commissioned conqueror, called and summoned by God. His coming, God foresaw and determined, which was going to bring about the perfect success for Cyrus at the same time. And I thought it was interesting, he's described as a bird that sweeps over, and I read that Cyrus would carry around a standard, a spear that had a gold eagle on the top of it. And he would swoop down from the east where Persia was and do God's bidding. And even though they're rebellious, he has plans of Israel for them to have future splendor. Unbelievable. Look at verse 13. God says, I am bringing my righteousness near. It's not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. This verse is about Judah's deliverance from Babylon, but it's also about Judah's final great deliverance at the end of the tribulation when Israel will realize that their mission before God has been to represent his glory, that they are to make known to all the nations the grace of God, and that in those times during the millennial kingdom, Israel will be like a giant trophy of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. What a wonderful plan he has for Israel. And I thought God sees the future in his mind, but it does not lie dormant there. He will foresee, he will predetermine, he will bring his purposes to completion because he is the great provider. He is mighty to provide over all the false gods, over all the false hopes. He is mighty to provide for his people. Sometimes we're tempted to become independent of God's reign in our lives. Let's think about Babylon just before Cyrus gets there. Of course, if you were Jewish from Judah, you would find out I'm a servant in Babylon. And some of you might even have been born in Babylon and been a servant since you were born, since they were there 70 years. And your days would have been spent serving from sunup till late at night, lifting, cleaning, heaving, moving, taking orders, deprived of all your dignity, and you would find out that you were a servant in the world capital of the time, the mighty, the powerful city of Babylon. It was a proud, a heartless empire. It was very cruel to all the nations that it controlled. This is one of the reasons when you read the book of Revelation, Babylon is a synonym used to describe the Antichrist. It represents all evil, all people who rebel against God. It's a symbol of concentrated wickedness, ripe for judgment, 
That was Babylon. She's a pattern of how evil empires grow and become exceedingly proud. But if you were a servant, one day you all at once might have heard some sounds. And the gates, the 100 gates that surround the city of Babylon would be crashing and breaking and you would hear stone crumbling and you would hear crying of the Babylonian people and the shouts of battle and war. And finally, you would hear shouts of victory from a Persian king. And if you had held in your heart any of Isaiah's prophecies we've been reading, you would have heard the word being passed around the people of Judah. Cyrus, Cyrus, remembering the words of God. And then before your very eyes, you would witness the capture of the Babylonians who had captured you, and they now are being captured by Persia. The independent reign of Babylon would come crashing to the ground and the faithful Jews would rise up and cry out. Look at verse 4 of 47. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name. He is the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 47 is all about the fall of the reign of Babylon. It's a historical account. It's a picture of a nation that refused to come under the reign of God. It is a foreshadowing of what will happen to every single nation that refuses to come under the reign of God. And it's a foreshadowing of what happens to the individual who refuses to come under the reign of their God and their creator. It was written as a poem in the form of a mocking song, they called it, or a taunt song. And when I think of that, I think of a middle schooler coming up with some goofy song. This was not supposed to be some um, unholy gloating. This was about the certainty of God's judgments. This is a taunt of faith. There is something to rejoice about when justice is done. And that's what chapter 47 is. It's another sign of the absolute control of history by Israel's God. And in this event, once again, we realize God alone is the ruler of the world. In these verses, you read that Babylon is pictured as a beautiful young virgin queen, meaning she hadn't been um, captured before. She was proud. She was sure of herself. Yet she's forced to step down from her throne of grandeur. She's forced to become a servant. We read those verses where she's doing menial jobs like grinding flour. We get a picture of the back of her going off into captivity, lifting her skirts as she tries to walk through the waters. All of these things, great shame, great humiliation to Babylon. And as she sits in the dust, God, the God of Israel, looks down at her and says, listen to me. Listen to me, Babylon. Look at verse 1 of 47. Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, daughter of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. Take off your veil. Lift up your skirts. Bare your legs. Wade through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed. Your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. 
I will spare no one. And the shout that Judah burst out to acclaim their Redeemer in verse 4 will be the same shout that the Jewish remnant will cry out when the Babylon of Revelation, Latter-day Babylon, gets conquered, the Antichrist, at the end of the tribulation. Let's read that verse out loud together. Verse 4. Ready? Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. Babylon is judged for three sins in this chapter. They all are the destructive results of living lives independent of the reign of God. And you can just find a place on your outline to write these. First of all, her cruel treatment of Judah. Let's look at verse 5. Sit in silence. Go into darkness, daughter of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. You said, I will continue forever, the eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Babylon was God's instrument uh, to carry his people into exile because they had led a life that was unworthy of the destiny that God had called them. And so in this way, we see in verse 6, God had desecrated his inheritance. Your version may say profaned his heritage. Either of those means he allowed his people to be defiled. But God did not appoint Babylon to be cruel, without mercy, and ruthless. And in doing that, she defied the purposes of God for his people. One reason was, we just read, she never considered the possibility that she would ever lose power. She never thought she would stop being the world power. She saw herself as the eternal queen, the world power for all of history. Secondly, her pride and her arrogance, God judges her for. Look at verse 8. Now then, listen, you wanton creature lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Those two things, widow and childless, that was a sign of great disgrace uh, for women back then. So she's saying, I will have nothing to ever disgrace me. I will have everything that I want. So we already have seen about their pride. Here we see her bragging about it. But take a look again at what she says in verse 8. I am, and there is none besides me. This is language used by God himself to define himself. So what Babylon is saying here results to self-deification, to claim that uh, they are a god. It's not an ordinary boast. It's an evil boast. It defiantly challenges God himself. And here's the reality. Only God Almighty has an existence that does not depend on another. Only God is independent for his existence. Thirdly, her trust in demonic forces. 
Look at verse 12. Keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. Now this is God not thinking they could actually do this. He's making them realize the futility of what they think demonic forces can do. Babylon didn't trust in the plans and purposes of God, but in sorceries, spells, idolatry, astrology. I think it's so interesting that they would place their hope in the stars and not ask themselves, who put the stars there? Let's, let's worship the stars, not the God who made the stars. Isaiah tells us later, they can't save themselves. They won't escape the power of the flame. That's a symbol of God's judgment. And then I thought, you know, these are the three sins that the world offers us today when we choose to live our life independent of the reign of God. Those who say, I am and there is none beside me. Here's what the world offers. A selfish lifestyle that ignores the ways of God. When we have no boundaries from our divine king, anything goes. What happened to Babylon was they became heartless and ruthless and cruel to anybody that got in their way. And I would have to say that is a picture of mankind apart from the boundaries of a divine God. That's what the world is like. And then in the first verses we read about what she was like in chapter 47, Babylon, they're all seductive, sensual words. And so we get a picture that Babylon lived this very self-indulgent lifestyle. And I thought, whoa, there's another picture of what we become when we choose to live life how we want, apart from God's rule in our life. The world offers an arrogant attitude that defies the reality of God. When we rule our lives without God's rule, we begin to live and believe. In fact, we might speak, not speak it out loud, but we begin to think we're a little bit of a God unto ourselves. And we plan our world that way. And finally, the world offers us a dependent allegiance to, to the forces opposed to God. Babylon was interested in demonic things. It was a result of her defiance of the one true God. When we live independently of God's reign, we've got to find somebody to depend on. And if we're turning our back on God, we're going to find other people that are turning their back on God, accept their philosophies, become dependent on them, and pretty soon they will be reigning in our lives. All along trying to keep ourselves in the center of our world and keep God out. What does God desire? He wants us to live our lives under his divine rule and express it through our lifestyle, our attitude, and our allegiance to him. Look at James 4 on your verse sheet. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God by humbly, obediently, 
And I'll have to say this, joyfully submitting yourself to your Creator. There is great joy in that. And as we do that, our lifestyle, our attitude, our allegiances to each other will be shouting out to the world, the Lord God, He is the Lord Almighty, the one true God. We are tempted to be independent of God's guidance. God asks Israel to listen to himself two more times in chapter 48. Why we would want to ignore the teachings and counsel of God, I do not know. It's how we are. In these verses, he's speaking to the captives of Judah in Babylon. They are freed now by Cyrus, but we find many of them still in Babylon. Interesting place. Now here's why. Not many of them are faithful to God. Therefore, they don't see their need to obey God when he said, leave Babylon, go back and rebuild the cities of Judah. So there they are. They're quite comfortable now in Babylon since they were probably not slaves anymore. So they give a nod of assent to the few people they know that are saying, we're going back to rebuild Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. And they're like, have fun. Okay, I think I'll just hang out here a while. Pretty comfortable here. They sit in the sins of those that surround them in a strange place. And by doing that, they're nodding also in assent to the sin that surrounds them. The word tells us they call themselves by the name Israel, which means prince of God, but they don't praise him. They confess the God of Israel, but they don't confess their sins. They call themselves citizens of the holy city of Jerusalem, but they are not holy. They say that they lean on God Almighty, but they are not godly. Do you know anyone like that? I thought about that, uh, finding myself in those places. This is a great description of the carnal Christian who doesn't pick up their cross and follow their Savior. I read this funny story about Dwight Moody who had a prayer meeting with men. There were 800 men in the room. And so they're all praying, and this frantic woman comes in with a little slip of paper, and she's looking for Dwight Moody, and she makes her way to him. She hands him this note, and then she runs out the back door. He opens the note and says, Please pray tonight for my husband. He's mean. He's irresponsible. He's difficult to live with. I'm just beside myself. So Dwight Moody thinks, this woman goes to this church. Maybe her husband happens to be in the room tonight. We can gather around him. We can pray for him. So Dwight Moody gets everyone's attention, stands up, reads the note, and says, if you're here tonight, if you're the man this note is about, would you raise your hand? 300 hands. 300 hands go up. How easy it is to say one thing with our mouths and do other things with our actions and give other things our hearts. They are nodding assent to the sins around them, thinking they can also nod in assent to the things of God, and they can't, and we can't. That's Judah in Babylon being where they don't belong. That's what happens to us. In the psalm we read, it said, How can they sing the songs 
of the Lord in a foreign place. We cannot toy around with evil and sin around us and still sing praises to God. So I thought next time you have to admonish yourself or a friend for a lazy attitude toward God, just say, get out of Babylon. Get out of Babylon. I'm going to remember that. Get out of Babylon. Look at chapter 48, verse 17. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you paid attention to my commands. Your peace would have been like a river. Your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand. Your children like its numberless grains. Their names would never be cut off nor destroyed from before me. Leave Babylon free from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Here's what the world offers. That we can claim a relationship with God while disobeying the commands of God. It also offers us to become complacent and conform to the sin that contradicts the truths of God. Here's what God desires, that we would depend on him alone for direction in our life. We just read in those verses, he is the one who teaches us what is best. He is the one who teaches us the right ways to go. The world will never do that. The world cannot do that for us and be our guide. He also wants us to reap the benefits of obeying the teachings of God. I love that. Did you see what those benefits were in that verse? Peace. Peace like a river. The world does not have that. Righteousness like waves on the sea. I love that illustration. You will not find that in the world. And descendants that are spiritually healthy and carry on your faith. The benefits of letting God be your guide. And add this to your outline. It got left off the bottom. Here's the last thing God desires. That we run from all that distracts us from our Redeemer. Run from all that distracts us from our Redeemer. There's a mom in our church that tells her children, slow obedience is no obedience. Slow obedience is no obedience. We are to run and not walk out of Babylon. We are to flee it. Get away from anything that distracts us from our Redeemer. And one day Israel will testify. One day they will be before God on his throne and they will say, we are under your provision." We are under your reign. We are following your guidance. The good news is we can do that today. We get to do that today by listening and heeding the words of God. Look on your verse sheet at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us so much. You give us your word to be a bright path for us in this life and that you desire to carry us through this world that has so many woes. We give you praise for that and rest in your arms and just ask that we would all be encouraged today to understand your mighty love and care for your own. We pray this in Christ's name.